This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. The book is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Herbert Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. The author Samuel Freedom from one of the country's most distinguished journalists, a revisionist and riveting look at the American politician whom history has judged a loser, yet who played a key part in the greatest social movement of the 20th century. Samuel Friedman is an award-winning author, journalist, and educator. He has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and has won the National Jewish Book Award and the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Award. His columns for the New York Times about education and religion have received national prizes. He is a professor at Columbia University and has been named the nation's outstanding journalism educator by the Society of Professional Journalists. Happy to have Samuel Friedman joined me here on Speaking of Writers. Sam, welcome great to this to be, program. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Steve. So why Hubert Humphrey and this period for you with this book? I felt that this book could fill two gaps. One was the biographical gap for people who, if they knew or remembered Humphrey at all, it was from the discredited later stages of his career when he supported the Vietnam War as Lyndon Johnson's vice president, when he got the Democratic nomination for president amid the police riot of the 1968 Democratic Convention, and when he ran as the establishment candidate against the peace candidate, George McGovern, for the 1972 Democratic nomination. The gap was that while those criticisms of Humphrey are totally legitimate, they overlooked or were ignorant of this incredible role he played, particularly in the 1940s in the civil rights movement of that decade and, and in really forcing the Democratic Party for the first time to fully endorse civil rights. And that leads me to the second gap I wanted the book to fill, which is that there are wonderful books, scores of them about the civil rights movement in this country, but most of them place the start of that movement in the 1950s with Thurgood Marshall winning the Brown versus Board of Ed Supreme Court decision outlawing school segregation with Dr. King and Rosa Parks involved in the Montgomery bus boycott. And again, there's nothing factually incorrect there, but what happened in the 50s and the 60s and beyond would not have been possible without this largely overlooked civil rights movement of the 1940s that was very connected to the war against fascism abroad and that was led by Black Americans like A. Philip Randolph and Walter White, Mary uh, Bethune, Mary McLeod Bethune, but in which arguably the most important white individual was Hubert Humphrey. So it's the summer of 1948. We're in an election year, the hot summer of 1948. What was a then young 37-year-old Humphrey like? Where was he in his career? As you said, Hubert Humphrey was young. He was 37. Politically speaking, he was even younger than that because he'd only held elective office at that point for three years in his entire life. And those three years were as mayor of Minneapolis, which is the 17th or 18th largest city in the country. So he's a relatively green mayor of a mid-sized city, but because he had already begun to make a national name for himself, by taking on in Minneapolis a city that was notorious, believe it or not, for its anti-Semitism and racism, not the blue city we think of now. And he had made it a model for making progress on civil rights and human rights. And so 
That gave him this prominent role in what was an effort by liberals within the Democratic Party to get the party to finally, as I said before, endorse civil rights. It had never done it before because the New Deal coalition Franklin Roosevelt had assembled and that Harry Truman was planning to use to run for election in 1948 included alongside organized labor and Catholics and Jews and college educated intellectuals, the segregationist Southern wing of the Democratic Party, white supremacists who were Democrats because Abe Lincoln's Republican Party was the party of emancipation and reconstruction. And FDR and Truman had made this devil's bargain with the segregationist wing to let them continue to practice Jim Crow, to turn a blind eye towards segregation in the South in order to have their votes, their votes on election day and their votes in Congress. And Humphrey and other liberals considered that both morally indefensible and politically uh, catastrophic at a time when, because of the great migration, more and more black Americans were in the North voting in large numbers and the Democrats to continue to be a majority party needed to offer those black Americans a reason to vote democratic. So for both of those reasons, again, the idealistic and the practical, Humphrey's insurgents brought this effort to explicitly endorse civil rights, not in general terms, but to say, desegregate the armed forces, outlaw lynching, outlaw the poll tax, guarantee personal safety to all Americans, and to extend those rights to minorities, not only by race, but also by religion and national origin. So this was also the civil rights plank that was really important to Catholics and Jews in America and, and Asian Americans and the Mexican Americans who were the leading edge of the Latino population at that time. And this was an effort Truman didn't want. It was an effort the Southern segregationists had vowed to walk out on and run a protest candidacy if it went through. And on the other hand, it was a moment in time when A. Philip Randolph was leading a national movement of draft resistance by Black Americans, unless the Democrats desegregated the armed forces. So this is the turmoil of that, you know, sweltering week in Philly in, 19, in July 48, when Hubert Humphrey takes to the convention podium to give a speech that's meant to persuade the delegates to take this very high risk position on civil rights. So he makes the speech. Uh, as you said, Truman did not want him to make this speech. What was the impact of it? The impact was that, shockingly, in a good way, the speech wins on the issue of civil rights. Um, and it's really significant because there were 1,500 delegates at that convention, about 300 of them alternates but only 17 are black Americans. Only a handful are female. None to my knowledge are Hispanic. None to my knowledge are Asian American. So this is an effort to move forward on civil rights that really involves white men having to put some of their white male privilege at risk. And Humphrey is able to carry the day partly with again, this argument for idealistic principle, partly with the pragmatism, partly by saying that we're in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. There are all these countries around the world, black and brown countries that are gonna be decolonized. And how can we ask them to align 
with liberal Western democracy as opposed to communism, if liberal Western democracy in the form of the United States tolerates and in some ways even embraces racial inequality. And Humphrey makes this argument just in 10 minutes under convention rules, that was all the time he had. And conventions at this time were not the planned prepackaged events we're used to now. This was a convention, Steve, that had 60 million people listening on radio, 10 million people watching on TV, which had just begun to get online um, in the Northeast United States. So 70 million people in a nation of what, maybe 230 million? It's a bigger audience than the Super Bowl these mm -hmm. days. And so Humphrey's effect is not just that he carries the vote, that by a narrow but decisive margin, the Democratic delegates endorse civil rights. It's that the whole country hears this happen. And in the wake of it, immediately Harry Truman has no choice but to run as a civil rights candidate. Two weeks after the convention, he desegregates the armed forces and he desegregates the federal workforce, two real landmarks in civil rights. The last weekend before election day, in the fall of 1948, Harry Truman becomes the first presidential candidate of a major party to give a campaign speech in Harlem, the symbolic capital of Black America. And on election day, the one and only reason Truman wins his upset over Thomas Dewey is because Truman has a surge of Black voters in several swing states that give him his electoral college margin. And this is the election that also proves once and for all that the Democrats can win without the segregated South because they don't win most of those states. And in a way that creates the political latitude that 16 years later, Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey will use along with the mass movement led by Dr. King to push through the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Act of 66. And so in a way our politics even now are very much the product of the, of the realignment that was catalyzed in 1948. We're chatting with Samuel Friedman here on Speaking of Writers. Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights is his new book that is out now. So, Sam, the big question, why was and has this moment been overlooked in civil rights history? That is a great question. I think conventional wisdom takes hold on certain historical events. And a lot of journalists and authors and the general public don't really want to interrogate it. So again, there's kind of a standard narrative of civil rights. And it's a standard narrative that begins with Brown versus Board of Ed in 54, the Montgomery bus boycott in 55, and proceeds through you know, the freedom rides, the lunch counter, sit-ins, the legislation I talked about before, Dr. King's assassination, the Poor People's Campaign. And that's a galvanizing and both uplifting at times and tragic at other times narrative. But it complicates it if you go back and look earlier. And so I think it's been very convenient and a little bit intellectually lazy to go along with the sort of standard tale of civil rights. I don't think there's any kind of a conspiratorial idea if we don't want to look at the 1940s and we don't want to look um, at Hubert Humphrey, frankly, it's the same reason that the Black leaders of that time, A. Philip Randolph and Walter White, aren't as well known as Martin Luther King or Malcolm X is. Um, 
that Mary McLeod Bethune isn't as well known as Fanny Hamer. Um, that at the other end, that a lot of people don't understand the moral blind spot that FDR had on civil rights because we've received narrative about FDR, which is partly true, but not entirely true, that he was a great liberal hero for his programs of the New Deal, which is true, but overlooks the fact that the New Deal um, tolerated this heinous capitulation to the Southern segregationists. And so again, you have to complicate a very neat, um, widely accepted narrative of the New Deal if you want to look at what it didn't do for civil rights. Sam, what was your research process like for this book? It was eight and a half years of work. It was largely archival, which was a real blast for me to do because I come out of a journalistic background. I don't have formal historian, formal training as a historian. And so over the 10 books I've done, I've been gradually moving away from more journalistic books that were based on interviews and observation of events as they happened into books that become more and more um, archivally based. And this one involved spending innumerable hours at the Minnesota State Historical Society reading Humphreys papers, reading the papers of A. Philip Randolph, the Library of Congress, and the Schomburg Center of the New York Public Library, chasing down all other kinds of primary source documents. And in terms of interviews, only interviewing people who were alive when Hubert Humphrey was engaged in the civil rights work of the 1940s. And a little bit in the book is about him dying in 1977. So few people who were around him at the point he was dying. But I'd made a commitment not to take anything secondhand, that even that I wouldn't, I would only interview someone like Vice President Mondale or um, Humphrey's longtime um, communications man, Norman Sherman, people who'd actually been around firsthand when the events of the book were taking place. And even then, when you're interviewing someone literally 70, 75 years after the fact, you don't just take an interview and trust it. You do everything you possibly can to, to verify it. I know Vice President Mondale was a huge fan of his. I, I can remember writing a letter. I think I was in high school or junior high to Vice President Mondale. And he wrote me right around the time when I think it was right after Humphrey had died. And he wrote yeah. me a beautiful letter back. Um, really, I mean, he loved him. He did. Well, um, Walter Mondale was a college kid at McAllister College in St. Paul when Humphrey was running for Senate in 1948. And that was when they first came to know one another. Of course, Humphrey was a tremendous influence on Mondale. But I'll tell you an interesting story about his eulogy, which is very celebrated, extremely eloquent, and kind of the recurring theme of it is that Hubert Humphrey and his dying taught us all how to live. No diss on Walter Mondale, but that eulogy was written by a man I mentioned earlier, Norm Sherman. Mm -hmm. Norm Sherman, who amazingly is still alive and writing op-eds, fierce liberal op-eds for the Cedar Rapids Gazette um, from his assisted living facility in Iowa City, Iowa at age 95 or 96. Norm wrote the eulogy for Walter Mondale. Norm also largely wrote Hubert Humphrey's very rightly praised um, memoir, um, The Education of a Public Man. Humphrey dictated a lot and to Norm, and Norm interviewed a ton of people 
in and around Humphrey. And then Humphrey edited the manuscript, but that was a case of, of Norm Sherman really shaping it um, literarily. Sam, through your research, what surprised you the most about Hubert Humphrey? It surprised me partly that what began with an intellectual interest in him became a visceral admiration for a lot of what he did. That's the broad answer. Specifically, what surprised me the most was to discover, as I write about the book, that his efforts on civil rights as mayor in Minneapolis were so controversial that he nearly was assassinated because of them. That at the same time in early 1947, when he was pushing forward on legislation, on civil rights and human rights, when he was forcing Minneapolis to actually do a statistical study of its own history of bigotry, a white supremacist anti-Semite um, follower of the notorious America Firster, Gerald L.K. Smith, hid in the bushes outside Humphrey's home one night and tried to shoot him down. Mm. And only because Humphrey's pet dog barked at the presence of this intruder in the bushes outside, and that seemed to have broken the shooter's concentration, only for that reason did he miss. Mm. And so to know that Humphrey almost gave up his life for this cause, and that he wasn't deterred for a second, even after almost being killed, nothing dissuaded him. And I think that's really one of the big surprises. The other was that the, the, the most transformational year of Humphrey's life, the year that makes him the person we know, is a year that gets very little attention in anything written about Humphrey, including even Humphrey's autobiography. And that was the year he spent as a graduate student at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, because that was where he lived in a Jim Crow society for the first time, where he met Jewish friends, interestingly, for the first time, and where he studied with an exiled, partly Jewish anti-Nazi professor who taught Humphrey these enduring lessons about how democracies can very rapidly become dictatorships. So that was the other surprise is that that was the year that really, really gave Humphrey the political ethos um, and the social conscience that we associate with him. The book is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. The author is Samuel Friedman. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. It was really a great conversation. Thank you. And this is Speaking of Writers.